and welcome to another episode of Queer and Divine, Conversations with Spirit and Pride, Season 2. I'm your host, Lily. My pronouns are they, them, theirs. And today we have a special guest, Emily DeMeo-Newton. Emily, welcome. Hi, I'm Emily. My pronouns are they, them. I graduated from Elon in 2018 as an English major. And a fun fact about me is that during the pandemic, I started doing ballet again uh, for the first time since I was a teenager. Ballet is always something that's been so interesting for me personally because I did like ballet as a little, little kid and then I tried to again in college and I feel like people who are really good at ballet and love it have such a strong level of patience I don't have. (laughs) That's very true. Um, And I actually, so I wrote about ballet during quarantine for Dance Magazine and particularly related to being non-binary, but I also feel like it applies to this where like, it felt so good to come back to ballet at that time because it was so much more chill and everyone was doing it for fun, like in our apartments because it was all there really was to do. And so just like the pressure was off in a way that had never happened before. Yeah, that's really cool. And you said like it related to kind of being non-binary. Could you like elaborate a little bit on that? Totally. Um, so there were a lot of parts, <laughs> there were a lot of parts about ballet that made me uncomfortable when I was a teenager, and understanding myself as non-binary now makes some of those make a little more sense, where, like, ballet is an extremely gendered art form, Um, but during the pandemic, we're all taking classes virtually on Zoom in our living rooms, and you weren't, like, on display the same way that you are in a classroom. And so I felt, like, very comfortable to kind of explore where my gender fits into the ballet world and to wear what I wanted to wear, do the steps that I wanted to do, where, like, I'd always done kind of, like, the quote-unquote male steps when I was given the option to by a teacher, but, like, everyone would look at me and kind of be like, oh, wow, Emily's doing the boy step. And then when I did it at home, it was just kind of like the teacher saw no one else really saw and so yeah it just was like a much less um spot like the spotlight wasn't on gender nonconformity as much and it felt a lot more comfortable yeah I, I I vibe with that completely because I think a lot about you know dance theater performance in general I have never felt as comfortable more comfortable than when I'm playing you know traditional masculine roles or even like tomboy girl female roles because there, I mean, quite honestly, there's more that you're allowed to do because of the way that gender is set up in our society. Mm-hmm. And yeah, one of my first, sorry. No, you go. Uh, one of my first memories of, like, gender euphoria, which, once again, was before I realized I was non-binary, was I played, like, a little boy in this musical for children, and we were waving at them on their way out and I could hear all the little kids whispering like is that a boy or a girl like I can't tell and I was just like this is my dream like (laughs) I just felt on top of the world (laughs) and that I love that kind of description because I think that sometimes when you try to describe gender euphoria people expect it to be this like really big event that you know altered your way of being and I honestly think it's often more of like small little moments that collectively add up to like an identity base. Yeah, I love that description. Yeah. 
Okay, so I wanted to also bring up, just so we can really kind of like dive into it, we were lucky enough to have two kind of previous conversations just to get to know each other a little better and the spaces that we both kind of come from and exist in. And I think you might be the very first person who has been Buddhist on the podcast. Cool. Which is exciting. Um, yeah. And I think a lot of people listening may not kind of understand um, like a, a full interpretation of what the religion looks like. If you were yeah. able to kind of give me a little bit of like your understanding growing up. Okay. Um, I will do my best. And obviously this is like my own perception mm-hmm. and experience as like my parents um, are convert Buddhists. It's not like a lineage in my family or anything, but my parents both became Buddhist before I was born and then raised me and my sister like as Buddhist. And uh, we even had some like monks living with us when I was really young. And so I got to kind of watch them from an early age and see what that was all about. Um, For me and my family, I would say a lot of how Buddhism showed up was more in the mindsets that we had and kind of our values and ways of thinking about the world and relating to people. Um, My parents also did, like, teach me and my sister about karma, which is kind of like the idea that the actions that you put out into the world cause, (laughs) almost like cause what happens next, Um, and what you've done in the past creates your present and your future, and so that has been a lot of how I've like conceived of um, morals as those were developing. And, yeah, there's an idea in Buddhism that it's kind of like there are two two wings of a bird, and one is wisdom and one is compassion. And in order for the bird to fly, you have to have both of those wings be in balance. So if you just have compassion, like, there's this uh, kind of, like, parable, fable-type thing about a monkey that sees a bunch of fish in a river and it's like oh no like the fish are drowning i have to save them and goes and like pulls all the fish out of the river and it's like he had a lot of compassion but he didn't have the wisdom to know that that's where fish live and like they need to be in the water um and then on the other side like if you're kind of too stuck in your head and analytical and theoretical um that's also not balanced and so like a story that's used as an example of that is there are two monks walking and monks the monks had like taken a vow not to touch women and then there's a woman who needs to cross the river like a very old woman who can't do it herself and the older monk picks up the woman and puts her over his shoulder and brings her across the river um and puts her down and then they walk on and the younger monk says to the older one like after a while he's like i can't believe you did that like you broke your vow you touched the woman and then the older monk was like i put that woman down hours ago why are you still carrying her you know what's just kind of like oh sorry God. yeah you know what is so interesting about that the moment you started telling it that is a story and like a parable that i grew up hearing but with a completely different middle part and yeah yeah so my dad's an anthropologist and storytelling and like other cultures have always been like really prominent in our kind of being raised and Mm -hmm. 
the one difference, the rest of it's the same, you know, I put her down hours ago, why are you still carrying her? But the big difference was that the monks who are crossing, you know, this river, there is a haughty woman, and she is wealthy and rude and, and you know, and, and says, one of you has to carry me over. And the older one, the one who has wisdom and compassion, chooses to. And the younger one is like, well, she was so rude to you, why would you, and is huffing and puffing the rest of their journey. And the old one finally stops and says, you know, I put her down hours ago. Why are you still carrying her? And kind of the idea of, like, holding a grudge, holding that hot stove yeah. only burns yourself. It's so interesting because I've never heard, like, an alternate, like, a different kind of telling of that. But both are, like, very interesting different kind of morals and lessons. Yeah. Yeah, that kind of adds a whole other layer of, like, the, like, metaphorically holding on to, like, what people have said and how they've acted toward you. Yeah. No, those were... Uh, those are the kind of stories that I think were super impactful for me because I was a very stubborn, very angry child. <laughs> I And I had a lot of that kind of like frustration and rage and hearing stories that related to like having compassion, being kind and like letting go of hard things that are not serving you was always really impactful in terms of like making me feel a little bit better when I was frustrated. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> okay, so... Seems like when you were growing up, there was a little bit more around like how to exist and be as a person, and then a little bit less of like religious tenant. Does that sound kind of right? Yeah, I would say so. We didn't have a religious community external to my family until I was 16 and we moved to North Carolina, where there was actually like a Buddhist temple near us where they spoke English. Um, and so at that point, then we like started going there and had a little bit more structure. And I, for the very first time, had peers who were also Buddhist. Um, and so that was also really meaningful to me because I think growing up, I always felt like very uh, out of place. And a lot of the time, like especially when I was in elementary school and middle school, I didn't want to be Buddhist because I was like, I don't want to be different than my peers um we lived in a very christian town and so i was like why can't we just be normal like them but then kind of as i was going through middle school and high school um not only did i start to appreciate difference more but i i started to be able to see more and practice the ways that like buddhist ideas were uh helping me be a wise person i would say and like handle conflict as you know conflicts get more complicated as you get older um and so then like I really came to value the ways that things were talked about in my home yeah and I think that often people like as you kind of were talking about the ways that you grow up and the kind of culture you're surrounded by if it doesn't match the people that you're around in the, in the city and the location the school community that you're a part of it can feel kind of isolating yeah absolutely and I think that queerness and gender con like conformity and, and non-binariness are very similar in the way of if you're in a community that is really heteronormative, that is really, you know, straight-centered, that not ever I really wish I were straight exactly, but, you know, this longing to, like, be around people who kind of get you without having to over-explain. Yeah, yeah, and to kind of blend in, like, for acceptance. I know there are multiple people from my like elementary uh, middle school early high school years who like are queer and non-binary but didn't come out until pretty late and yeah I think 
location can make a big difference. I, I agree that it's a very similar feeling of like this thing that's like pretty internal and sometimes external. And then you're like, what balance do I want? And I really like want some control over um, who knows what this is, who doesn't. I don't know. No, that makes sense. And I, you know, I think what I'm happy to see more often than not, because I work with kids and I nanny for kids, is children feeling more comfortable wearing clothing that fits how they feel inside or just, you know, I like pink and who cares? And it's not even like a statement of any kind. And that was just like not something that existed when I was in elementary school. You could do it if you were, you know, assigned female at birth where you could be a tomboy and that was totally allowed. You could play sports, you could be like in the mud, but boys never had that option. That was not a a two-way street. Yeah, and I think it's kind of like what we were talking about with ballet earlier where it's like, like in my experience, you could do it, but you were really gonna be noticeable. and there are a lot of times where you just want to, you just want to be like, well, this is who I am. Like, why are you looking at me so intensely? Or like, why are you making a big deal out of this? This is just the way that I am. This yeah. is what I like. No, I agree. Um, and I think, I think it's interesting because as a kid, I think kids kind of fit, not obviously in two perfect boxes, but kind of on like one side or the other where I see some kids who don't care what the fuck people think of them. They are they are happy to flaunt whatever they're interested in wearing with their who they be with the interests they have. And then kids who are I, I like to say like they're soft of heart. And that can be because they're shy, because they're introverted, because they have big deep feelings. And I get that too. And you know, I think that if the world was a little kinder when kids were younger and having formative years we wouldn't have people who were like 16 and on really struggling to place where they fit into different parts of society. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, I also wanted to bring up just a little bit, you and I had talked about not only the pretty obvious intersection between faith and sexuality and like gender, but also with like other aspects of your life um, in, in terms of like autism, for example. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was diagnosed with autism just a few months ago, but obviously it was something that I have, like, I've been autistic since I was born, Um, and I'm really finally coming to understand or starting to understand the intersection of all of those experiences, like you said, Um, and something that personally I find fascinating is that a lot of autistic people are non-binary or trans and like one of the reasons for that is that gender is a social construct and autistic people have a hard time like intuiting social constructs so to me once I learned that like like in a gender studies class that gender is constructed it's not something I had to be like trying so hard to kind of perform um and be like oh am I am I doing it right am I doing it like all the other girls um I was like whoa I can just let go of that and I honestly feel like that was one of my first experiences with like unmasking in a certain way so like that's a term that's used by autistic people um masking 
is used to mean hiding your autistic traits. So it takes like a lot of energy, um, usually involves like sitting still where like autistic people like to kind of move around and experience sensations and like that kind of thing, like using fidget toys and stuff. Um, so it's like doing that and for some people forcing yourself to make eye contact um, and just moving in like neurotypical ways and realizing that I could just kind of kind of put down my gender and stop I don't know trying to get people to accept me and like to like quote unquote do it right I feel like was very much a first step in like coming to present my authentic self to the world and you kind of you know talk about how a a course like coursework I'm assuming in college taught you a little bit more about like the higher statistics with people who you know are autistic and that kind of correlation with non-binary and transness was that I mean somewhat of a relief somehow to kind of realize that fact yeah it's kind of interesting to um think of it in that direction because I knew I was non-binary for a long time before I knew I was autistic but it really does kind of feel like the same thing where it's it's like an answer to why I had been feeling so uncomfortable I think both of them just kind of um autism seemed like the the last kind of barrier where I was like I can't figure this out and then I was like oh okay here like here is an answer here is a um kind of like explanation for all of this but uh yeah I I think like I don't ever feel like you need to have, you know, a reason or an explanation for your gender by any means, but it did kind of, like, it's like, wow, of course, like, I I don't need a gender, I don't know, it just, um, I guess it, it made me understand, like, I didn't change much about the way that I presented myself when I came out as non-binary, I had been wearing the clothes I felt comfortable in, um, acting the way that, you know, I wanted to for the most part. But yeah, I think it did help validate for me that um, I could be non-binary and still kind of be perceived as a woman by strangers. Yeah. And I also, your story is such an interesting one for me, I think, because, you know, for somebody who is not only non-binary but autistic and in a religion that is a minority in this country, those are a lot of factors that create a more or less really interesting type of person and experience. Um, And, you know, I would say as somebody who is currently a student at Elon that often people who are outside the norm are not usually welcomed into, like, the larger parts of societal community norms. Um, What was your experience kind of like being at Elon and having these kind of identities? Yeah, wow, that's a good question. Um, I would say I have found, like, a really solid community where I felt very accepted. Um, But it did take a very long time for me to find that. And I guess it, it was kind of interesting where, like, in some places, I felt, like, 
very excited to to be who I was and then in some places I was like oh okay I'm gonna like kind of keep this stuff on the down low over here yeah yeah that's understandable were there any kind of like professors or clubs on campus that were like spaces that you enjoyed being in yeah uh I was my freshman and sophomore years I was um a pretty involved member of I am that girl I don't know how it's still doing but um that was like a great place where for me um where especially before any of us had like very close friends we all kind of were able to come together and be vulnerable with each other um and we all kind of joked like we knew like the hard times that people were going through before we knew their name and I actually now in New York City am roommates with somebody that I met and I am that girl and so um would you give us just for people who are listening could you tell us a little bit about what the club is yeah of course um it is a national organization and then like different schools have chapters of it uh and what it was at least when I was at Elon is we would meet once a week um it was like girls but inclusive uh I don't quite know the language that that they're using but um it was kind of like if you feel comfortable in this space you are absolutely welcome to come here um and the meetings start by, like, you go around and you say, like, why you were a badass this that week. And then usually there would be a topic and we would all talk about it. Um, and at the end, you go around again and people could say, like, kind of, like, give an affirmation to another person. So you would say, like, you were that girl because and you'd be like, oh, like, I don't know, I saw you on campus and you waved to me and I was, like, having a hard day and it made me feel like someone noticed me like that kind of thing I love that um, yeah um you were bringing up something about I think a roommate that you're rooming in that you met with that you currently live with oh maybe? yeah yeah I just think it's like uh kind of came kind of came full circle and it's still in my life it's not something that I've thought about in a while but one other thing that I wanted uh to say in response to your question is that um I do think like the combination of autism being non-binary and Buddhism um, played out in my like family dynamic also, and then also in the ways that I like coped with being in spaces that maybe were like a little more judgmental towards minority identities. Where like my dad is also autistic, and um, I feel like. There was a like that combined with Buddhism. There was kind of an openness and like a hesitancy to judge certain situations or things, and just kind of like meeting situations and ideas at face value, and not kind of taking like I don't know, like like autistic people. Um, tend to take things rather literally and not pick up on like implied messages and I also feel like a lot of Buddhism is about like teaching yourself to see things with a beginner's mind so kind of for the first time and be like wait what is actually 
here instead of like what preconceived notions do I bring to this um and so like both of my parents were very accepting of me when I came out as as all sorts of queer um (laughs) and I do think that like all those intersections were part of that and then also when I've been in like spaces I think in some ways it has been a strength where like I don't understand why people would be judgmental of certain things because I'm just kind of like that like maybe like in some ways like the the social context um I I can like identify the social context and explain it theoretically but like it's really hard for me to like think of that from another person's perspective in terms of like oh well of course they would be judgmental of this because like this implied thing um and so I think that that helped me a lot in like middle and high school as well where people I remember there was this one boy in middle school who was like you know like I'm Buddhist too like I smoke weed Ooh. and I was like what <laughs> I was like so confused um and just so many experiences like that where like people would also say things like um like you're Buddhist but you're not Asian and I would just be like yeah that's true uh and I do think that like in some ways autism saved me from feeling any any sort of way about those comments I was just like that's what they said and I answered them and that is that yeah and if they wanted to make it an insult or a question on your identity they could have done that and they you know if you if you choose to use vague and you know ambiguous language in how you talk to somebody they have the full right to not answer you and the implied meaning that you have. I love that. Totally. Yeah. And I feel like that saves you sometimes. Not heartbreak, obviously, because that's a little bit of an extreme word. But, you know, somebody saying, like, oh, is that what you're wearing? Like, that type of language that's being used. You can be like, yeah, it's a shirt. Versus being like, yeah. oh, crap, what am Literally, I? Word for word, that happened to me um, in middle school. There was this girl who, like, I guess was, like, trying to bully me. And she was like, what? Like, why are you wearing that dress? And I was like, because I like it. And she was just like very like thrown off and she was like, oh. And then she like never said anything like that to me again. Yeah, because she expected you to say something like, oh, it's so ugly, uh, blah, 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 or like, blah, blah, it's an insult, or looks sad. And you were like, because I enjoy the color, the pattern, the legs. Exactly, I'm like, well, you asked me and I, I answered the question that you asked me. I think I'm going to have to, like, take that in my own personal life because I think that will save me from, like, the immense overthinking that happens day to day. Yeah. Um, okay, so we are getting close to the end of our time. And so there's a tradition on the podcast. I think it's been both seasons, but maybe halfway through season one, where I like to end the podcast allowing you to talk a little bit about some advice, some well-meaning statements, or even just to like recap on some things that you think are important for anybody who's listening who relates to the identities you have or in general is hoping to learn more about the identities you have. Yeah, I would say my my advice um, is that the like when you bring your authentic self to the world you will eventually find people who will love you. Um, And I feel like I spent so much of my life kind of navigating those things and saying how much should I, like, reveal and how much should I hide, even, like, when I was in private, like, just alone. Um, 
but I have found that the more that I am myself and the more that I don't like hide my traits and my thoughts the, the like the more that, that I find people who I love and who also love me and who I relate to that's that's so wonderful because I think that a lot of people who have listened to the podcast who have talked to me or people who in general have similar identity backgrounds have kind of had this you know wanting to conform in certain scenarios to have everyone like them and I think sometimes it's, it's better to remember it's better to have those five or six people who know you and love you for the person you are than to be half acquaintance liked by 50 to 60 people definitely yeah okay so thank you for the advice I I wish we had more time to talk because I hope other people who are listening to this feel this, but you have a very, like, wonderful way of telling stories. It has a nice flow to them, and your voice is very peaceful. So, like, good podcast presence all around. Thank you so much. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, Thank you so much for taking time to, like, come on the podcast today. If there's any, like, kind of last things you want to say. Just thank you. This has been so lovely, and I I was really excited uh, to connect with you. Me too. I love I love all like Elon people because we have so much in common yet so much indifference be, just based on the years that we were here. Definitely. Yeah. Okay. Listen in next time and as always, thank you for taking the time and space to listen in with us. You can find us on Instagram at Elon Spirit and Pride one word and then for Emily, you can find me on Twitter at Emily Grace DMN. Amazing. This has been Queer and Divine Conversations with Spirit and Pride.